I stand as I have stood a meaningless number of times on one of the long thoroughfares, lined with wild pear trees alternating white thorn and prairie grasses, blooming as though they were planted with some purpose, to shade the heat chattering off this road, pushing into the air with oily hands, tracing a finger pattern into the image I see. Though it may not be real, the void of the labyrinth has no shape and thus no constancy. I have come through a considerable snarl, and the new body I have won does not make it easier. I cannot see my legs move beneath me. They blend so into the liquid night and shadow, swallowing stars into my knee pits. Catherine M. Valente is the author of the poetry chapbook Music of a Proto-Suicide. Her new novel is The Labyrinth. Welcome to the show, Cat. Thanks. Cat, when you write something like The Labyrinth, how do you choose to write it as prose, which is what you wrote, as opposed to poetry, which is what it reads like? Well, I think that poetry and fiction come from very different places. And poetry, it's so concentrated. Obviously, the book is concentrated, too. But there is a narrative. There is a flow. There is a much more relaxed kind of functioning of of the mind and the page and all of these things than with poetry, which is, is just all of a rush and much more vivid to me. I mean, I, which is not to denigrate fiction at all. Um, it's just... I think that fiction can have the same language use and the same importance of language as poetry does without the same kind of strictures of form. I could make an argument, I think, that we could take this book, put it into our word processor, do a global replace of commas with carriage returns and a global replace of periods with (laughs) (laughs) carriage returns and come up with an epic poem. Well, you know, you can do that with the Iliad, too. You can take the Iliad and take out all the carriage returns, replace it with commas, and come up with a prose translation. Without the strictures of rhyme and meter these days, what is the difference between poetry and fiction? Is is poetry just fiction in a column? I A lot of people have said this is a prose poem. The introduction to this book that Jeff Vandermeer wrote says that it reads like a long prose poem. And at first... I agreed with that because I think prose poetry is something of a a median between poetry and fiction. But as I thought about it, I think that that lets fiction off the hook. I think that it removes the responsibility for its own language. I think that most fiction is, is so concerned with getting to the next plot point that it doesn't really care how it gets there. And the labyrinth is all about how it gets there. That's, that's the purpose of the book is the journey with, without sounding too pretentious about it. But um, I think that, that language is, it's not just how we write, it, it's what we write. And to call this a prose poem is to shuffle it off into the realm of poetry and ignore it as fiction. Well, I'm wondering then, as fiction, what happens when somebody like you makes the conscious choice to use the kind of ornate and extreme language that you use? What brings that on? How does that serve the fiction? Where do you make that decision? And how often do you make that decision when you are writing? Well, I don't always make that decision. Um, This book and the the second one that's coming out this year, The Book of Dreams, are both written in in that sort of style. Um, What's sort of hard to communicate is that that's a completely natural style for me. That's how my mind works I don't have to go to a thesaurus. It just comes out that way. And uh, I I take responsibility for it being mine. But it, it's to, to answer, well, why do you write that way? It's 
why do you think that way? Why do you feel that way? I can't you know, answer those questions. But I think that with a story like The Labyrinth or an anti-story, as, as it may be, um, it's, it's, a, it's not a strict plot. Um, that kind of language serves it because the language is in itself a labyrinth. Um, with the Book of Dreams, that, that involves madness and involves visions and, and sort of the, uh, the religious hermit image. And so that also lends itself to a kind of language that is that kind of thonic, subconscious, dreamlike prose. Uh, I don't always make that choice. If the story isn't served by that kind of language, I will go to a more normal kind of speaking. But, uh, but still, I, you know, I was a poet first, and I can't, I can't just go to the next paragraph because I want to get to the part where, you know, the murder happens or something. I, I want to get there in an interesting way. And for me, language is paramount. It's all important. So even if I'm, if it's a more, I don't want to say pedestrian, but even if it's a more regularized or traditional voice, um, it's still going to be the strangeness that goes on in my head. I can't really get away from that. Is your writing informed? You've done a lot of academic writing, haven't you? I have. How does that inform your fiction? Well, stylistically, not at all. Um, In in some ways, I really hate academic writing. Not that I I hate academics. I love academics. But uh, I hate how much I have to control the voice we were just talking about to be at all legible in (laughs) academic writing. You know, when I first started out in that, I was a lot more creative with it than I am now because you just can't get away with that. Um, Helene Sassou, who was a, a, a critic, talked about immuned writing, which is writing that is out of the world, beyond the world. And you can't write an immuned thesis. You just can't. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way. So I have to I have to be a good little girl and wear my good little Mary Janes and dot all my eyes and cross all my T's. But academics absolutely inform everything I write. I my degree is in classics. The fact that I have three languages bouncing around my brain no doubt affects the oddness of my my writing. Um Everything that I learned through academics finds its way into my work somewhere. I, it, it is a funnel through which I get to write, and it's what I love about academics. It's a constant flood of new material and new information. I mean, wh- what gets better than that? Uh, but so, yes, it absolutely does. You know, if, I, if I'm doing work on, on medievalism, I'm probably going to end up with, with medieval aspects in, in my work. But um, as far as style goes, n- not in the slightest. It's, it's two completely different sides of the brain. Could you tell our listeners, give us an idea, how would you describe the labyrinth for the uninitiated <laughs> beyond a maze? You know, I spent the entire car ride going, I really have to come up with an answer for what's your book about. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it, it, I don't want to say it defies summary, but it really does because the book is, is sort of a summary of itself. It's hard to, to discuss it without saying, well, you, you have to read the book. But um, in the simplest terms, it is a girl lost in a maze. The language itself is part of the maze, so that the reader is also part of the maze. But um, it's vaguely Alice in Wonderland-like. It's sort of a surrealist version of of the traditional quest, but that quest is is in itself inverted in the the course of the novel. How Um, is the quest inverted? Well, 
the the labyrinth, the traditional labyrinth quest being Theseus and the Minotaur, it's sort of the, one of the older ones. There is a Minotaur at the center. There is assumed to be a Minotaur at the center, which assumes that there is a center. This labyrinth has no center. It has no borders. It has no beginning. It has no end. So to say that the heroine seeks out the center of the maze, as Theseus did, as as any of the, the great labyrinth treaders have, is a lie. And the heroine must come to understand that it is a lie, that you can only ascribe meaning to any one thing yourself. You can't assume that meaning is going to come from without. And if you've, you've discovered a thing like a name or a door or any of the things that become centers of, of her psyche in the novel, it's only because you declare that that's a center, so that there are an infinite number of centers. And if there are an infinite number of centers, it, the word center becomes meaningless. As you were talking about academic writing, this actually does feed into some of the uh, the postmodern theorists, which I had not read at the time that I wrote the novel. And, and as I uh, get the, get into them now, I, I go, oh, I wrote about that in the labyrinth. <laughs> so maybe it's a uh, you know subconscious, universal subconscious or something. But um, this plays into what you mentioned in the novel too, that there was no before time or no after time for the character. Yes. You really don't give the reader a reference. No. It, it's like an immediate immersion into a very heavy psychedelic drug trip, <laughs> essentially. Without drugs, though. I mean, yes. I, 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 again, with the taking away of responsibility, drugs take away your responsibility for anything you see or experience. Mm-hmm. You know, there. There, you are complicit in the novel, the, the dedication that is dedicated to the reader, that the blame is yours. Everything you experience here is your responsibility and you have to own it because there is no preamble. There is no, well, this is going to be about a maze, so sit still and get ready. There's, there's nothing like that. It is immediate immersion because that is the most disorienting experience and, and what is a maze but the physical representation of, of disorientation, of, of not understanding where and what you are. And so the reader evolves as the heroine does and is immersed in the novel as much as I I, I could manage to immerse them. (laughs) How does a reader approach this novel as a reader? I'm not sure I understand that question. (laughs) Well, how do you expect somebody to sit down and read this? In terms of, there's so much to ingest in this. And there's a couple ways you can approach it. The way I approached it was to read it as fast as I possibly could. I just cram my head full of these images. It was like I I was surfing through just an almost insane sequence of images. Is that the right way to read this? I I don't think there is a right way to read it. I hope that the reader ingest it in any way that is meaningful to them. If it is meaningful to them to take it all in one gulp, great. That's how I read books like this. You know, it's how I read any book that is overwhelming to my senses. I I try to immerse myself in it as much as possible. If it's meaningful for them to take it one chapter at a time, even if that's out of order, great. You know, I I just hope that, um, that they can find their own center in it, that they can, they can find themselves in a place where it makes sense to them in, in, in any way that's possible. You know, I've had readers talk to me about meanings that I had never really realized, but of course they've found their own name or their own center in, in the novel. Um, and I think that that's, that's great. I don't really intend for it to be read any way, any one way. Um, can read it however you like imagistic writing like that sort of lends itself to the surfing approach, I suppose. Um, 
tell us a little bit about, you've written this as a series of cantos. Now, cantos are divisions of a long poem. So we're back to the, is this a poem or is is this a piece of fiction? But I'm also wondering, cantos bring to mind a very specific uh, reference, uh, Ezra Pound, uh, Vorticism, Imagism. I'm wondering, was that part of this? The reference I meant was Lord Byron, actually, oh, really? <laughs> going, going back a little further than, than Ezra Pound. Um, well, cantos properly are the divisions of a song. And, you know, the, the division between poetry and song is something even older than the argument about poetry and fiction. And in a sense, I can see this more easily as a, a song than a poem. You know, a poem is something that that really does have a rigid form. Even in in free verse poetry, there is a rhythm, there is a form. You do have to co- to conform to certain things. Whereas fiction, to me, is like Borges's map. It's it's all over the place, and it's as big as the subject matter. So, as this is the subject matter here is the labyrinth, it's as large as the labyrinth can be. As far as cantos go, well, it needed to have some structure, and. The cantos are divided into a certain logic as the psyche of the narrator f- flows in a circular pattern. It's a, it's a very circular book. Um, but as far as why why I chose cantos, I wasn't really intending to imply that it was a poem, but that it had elements of poetry in the old sense of the oral poets and Homer and, and on through the romantics. Um, again, not that it, it is an oral poem or that it is a romantic work, but that it has elements of all of these things. Uh, if, if the labyrinth is, is as large as, as reality, then it, it includes all of these things inherently. Um, but it is, in some sense, a, a song of being. The Nietzsche quote in the beginning talks about a human that, that you know, constantly sings out. Uh, and in that sense, I, I think that counters are an appropriate division. Let's talk about it, about it as a piece of fiction characterization. At first, I was wondering if we were going to get any characters. <laughs> <laughs> but we do. And they're fairly interesting. Monkey, bear, walker, uh, plague house, witch. As you created this, did the characters rise like waves out of the language? Or did you have in mind these as points uh, that you were going to look at, your character was going to see? I had no map starting this this novel. It started with wanting to use language in an interesting way, but I don't want that to indicate that it is only a linguistic exercise. It certainly is not. Um, and the characters did come that way. Uh, I'm very interested in the animal guides of Native American myth, which is where there's a lot of animals in this book. Um, they are somewhat archetypal. I mean, as you said, the witch and the plague house, and this certainly feeds back to the Hansel and Gretel. Uh, image. But yes, the characters, they inserted themselves <laughs> where they would. And while I certainly needed my, my I hate to use the word heroine, but, but I, I needed my, my narrator to encounter certain conflicts along the way. Um, and I always had the monkey in mind. That was every, every self needs an other. And, uh, my husband, being in the Navy, had traveled to uh, the South Pacific and came back with these beautiful photographs of the monkeys in the temples that guarded all the temples in, in uh, Southeast Asia. And I was just fascinated with these very fierce but very beautiful 
golden monkeys that were all over these these sacred places and so that's where where that came from uh, almost as soon as I had the idea of the woman uh, the idea of this this temple creature uh, came along with her the rest of them uh, you know, I, I blame my subconscious and and will take it to task over it but uh, I, I'm not sure where they came from it was uh, I think all of them were very necessary and and animals that you know the the crocodile <clears throat> who, who claims to be spiritually pure. Well, of course, crocodiles are spiritually pure in the Egyptian sense. Uh, they all have ties to mythologies wherein they are sacred. I'm wondering if you could tell us about, um, there's a danger in books like this, that they're so serious, and, and you're talking about very deep subjects. But one thing you do quite well, I thought, and made the book a lot more readable and entertaining was to bring in a lot of humor. How do you do that? And how, where does that come in? Is that deliberate? Do you spike it? How do you have a monkey and not have humor? <laughs> I mean, there, I, I think that there are certain things which are inherently funny, and you can't have a monkey talk to a human for too long without acknowledging the ridiculousness of that situation. And even though there is no before time for the narrator, she is at least a somewhat sensible creature before her sort of metamorphosis begins. Um, so the monkey was all, always inherently funny to me, as all of the Gandalf, Yoda characters are. All of these sort of wizard guide characters end up being somewhat self-effacingly funny in that sort of Zen monk way. Um, as far as the crocodile goes, I dreamed that. And it's hilarious to me. I hope it's funny to other people. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I, I just end up undercutting myself. I, I meant to be a lot more serious than I ended up being because, uh, it just gets so heavy that, that even the narrator has to step back and, and shake their heads sometimes. And, and, uh, all of the bizarreness of the characters that she encounters. Alice Wonderland's funny too. I, I think that there's inherent humor in that. I particularly loved the gospel of the man who walks into a bar. <laughs> Where did you get that? <laughs> I, I mean, dreamed it. I dreamed it. I was lying in bed in Rhode Island. I had spent the summer in Rhode Island where I wrote this. Um, and I just, I heard it in my head and I didn't want to get up. I was so tired. I thought, oh, I don't want to write this down. Oh God, I have to go write it down. <laughs> so I dragged myself up and I wrote it down and uh, I I love it. And it just, came absolutely out of that dreamy sort of half state where strange things come and and uh it he is one of the my favorite characters that I have ever pushed out of my brain let's talk a little bit about the sacred and the profane in this book you up in the sacred and underneath you find the profane how do you discover that one inside the other as part of the labyrinth? Well, I think that the sacred and the profane are always part of each other. I mean, in every world mythology, it's yin and yang and self and other, and you, you always have this circular connection between what is white and what is black, what is good and what is bad. Uh, I think that that's the core of every story that's ever been told. The, conscious is, the consciousness is encounter with the subconscious, and anytime you scratch white, you find black. Anytime you scratch black, you find white. They are always entwined. Uh, it's a very abstract way to look at it. But it's a bit of an abstract book. Um, as far as it goes, I don't think it's particularly... 
I think it's a more profane book than it is a sacred book. Um, but I've always found profanity to be more sacred than the divine. <laughs> Certainly more entertaining. Certainly more entertaining. Virtues are very difficult. <laughs> you talked about having three languages bouncing around in your head, and they pop up in the book. They do. As do a number of quotes from various poets. Yes. How and why do you include these these passages, and, and how do you expect the readers to react to them? I mean, how many? Not many of us are are first in Latin. I kept the Latin to a minimum. You did. I was very good. I didn't. I didn't write the whole book in Latin. I, <laughs> I, I kept it. Uh, I kept it very calm. And actually, part of the Latin is a quote from Ovid, so it's not. It's it's not me. Uh, trying to compose in Latin, which is an altogether a frightening uh, concept. So that if you need to skip over the Latin, it's not a problem. You'll no, understand. I, I understand that. Um, as far as it goes, that's how I think. These these things come up in my head. And the the poetry that's quoted, some of it's very well-known poetry, sure. uh, the Marlowe and, and, and such. Some of it is not so well-known. Um, the concept was that it was... There is a before time for the character. She just can't touch it. Much as, you know, there may be things all around us that we can't touch and we can't understand, that these are sort of pieces of her before time that leak into her. And she can't understand them any more than than we can understand phenomena in our own world. Uh, So they're meaningless to her, but they're, of course, meaningful to us. Um, They are appropriate to to each situation in which they occur. That's how I chose them. Um, The Marlowe... Uh, I mean, for a classicist, the topless towers of Ilium, <laughs> it's practically a mantra. So uh, the, these are, are things that very much are part of my psyche, and so they become part of the narrator's psyche. Uh, she you dream in poetry. I do, I do. It's terribly cliched, but I do. Um, uh, she and I are very intertwined, the narrator and I. Uh, so if I'm thinking in poetry, so is she. I'd like to talk a little bit about some, you have a, about, what, 15 things that are coming up. <laughs> Maybe you could tell us a little bit about them, where they come from. The Daughter's Tale series, mm. the book of the garden, sea, air, flame. Yes. Who's going to publish it? What are they? Well, the, we're, we're floating around with uh, whether or not uh, Wildside is going to publish it or whether or not we're going to find a larger publisher for them. Um, that's all sort of up in the air right now, so I can't really say anything one way or, uh, or another about it. But uh, they are a collection of fairy tales. They're all interconnected. Uh, they had originally intended to be much more like short stories than they ended up being. Uh, I read Arabian Nights a, a few summers ago, and I was just absolutely captivated with the way that Scheherazade told the stories, that in each story a character would begin the next story so that it was an, an unbroken chain of stories all the way down the line. And uh, with all of the mythology in my brain, I thought that I could come up with a, with a new set of fairy tales, a new Grimm or a new Anderson, which may be terribly ambitious, but uh, I, I do try. Uh, the first one is, is complete, and it, the Book of the Garden. Um, I don't know if you want me to tell you anything about the plot, but... Uh, sure. We, oh, we have the witch in the hut again. It's always the witch in the hut with me. But uh, it, it's, the, it's the prince that encounters a witch in the wood, and that is the, the basic fairy tale formula it begins with, and a whole world opens up from this encounter. 
and each each story connects to the next one so that each ta- each tale that might be a short story is actually the story of each character and they all connect together at the end to 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 come around in another circle now is this prose poetry in oh, a style not. This labyrinth? Is, this is actually intended to be accessible to, to young adults as well. It is okay. uh, It is consciously in the style of, of the old fairy tales, not not in the sense of once upon a time there was a prince, no, but uh, the more interesting similes of Arabic and, and the, uh, the Eastern fairy tales. So yes, it is very rich language. I can't help it. I am what I am what I am. But uh, it, it is certainly much more accessible than Labyrinth uh, and, and, and the Book of Dreams. I'm very proud of it. I love it very much. I give it to my niece as much as I can because I love telling stories. I love telling stories to children. Uh, it's not a children's book. But it's not an adult's book either. It's 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 intended to bridge both. Tell us about the Book of Dreams. The Book of Dreams I wrote. I live in Japan right now, and I wrote it while I lived in Japan uh, in last October. Uh, I live alone for the most part. So my husband's in the navy. He went to Iraq, and and uh, he's gone most of the time. So I live alone in the jungle in a little house, <laughs> and uh, I suppose I'm, I'm my own witch in the hut, and. I wanted to write about being alone and what that is and, and how much you become enveloped in yourself and unable to, to escape who and what you are because there's, there's really nothing else to encounter. Uh, and so because I was living in Japan, it is a Japanese novel. The, the, the narrator, Ayako, is Japanese. And reducing it to its simplest terms, it, it's about uh, an old Japanese woman who who lives in the mountains and has gone almost entirely mad, and she dreams that she is a number of other women in the world. And it sort of brings together quantum physics and Greek mythology and Shinto mythology and, and <laughs> all kinds of crazy things. And the Sphinx. Never forget the Sphinx riddles. Women, are, of course, play an important part in your books. And I'm also looking now at your academic writing as well, The Sacrifice of Polyzina and the uh, Tell Me About Your Mother. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) As a writer and and as a woman, tell us how, what you're trying to do with with your writing. Well, I don't have an agenda, so it's hard to say what I'm trying to do. Academically, I'm, I'm interested in archetypes. I think that Jung and Campbell completely ignored the presence of any kind of feminine force that was not simply sexually available or sexually unavailable. And I think that that's something that is important, not only for us that's as... That's a fascinating observation. Well, I, I think that they were men and, and well, really yes. considered... <laughs> well, and, and Jung himself says that archetypes are only... that they are empty, that we put our own psyches into them and they're only as important as, as our own psychology makes them. Well, of course, Jung's psychology is, is inevitably male, and so he injects them with, with the, the hero qualities that he sees as important. But we as women readers, not just women writers, but as women readers, we have to find our own insertion points in the text, and we can't do that if, if we are only reduced to a binary zero or one. Um, so in my academic work, I want to illuminate these things. I want to make these things accessible in, in some of the most androcentric work is the Greek, the Greek dramas and the Greek, the Greek poems. As much as I love them, I can't ignore what they are. So academically, I'm very interested in that and it's what I'm trying to do. In my own writing... I can't approach the agenda thing or I become so overdetermined I can't even write because I, I can't think about what I'm supposed to be writing as, as a 
feminist or a postmodernist or whatever. I just write it, and other people can sort it out later. But um, I am a woman, and women's physicality, women's psyches are intensely important to me. And so I, I wrote a book that is very much about uh, experience, not just female experience, but experience that is touched and shaped and molded by the feminine force. Could you talk a little bit about the writers who inform your work, both past and currently working? I, I would suggest maybe Lewis Carroll, Sylvia Plath, uh, Jeff Vandermeer, and Michael Sisko or some... Well, I haven't read Michael Sisko, but you're right on, <laughs> on everybody else. Um, I actually had a, a very bizarre experience in the last few years in that I'd been having my head down in the library in the midst of all of this Greek and Latin, and, and I stuck my nose up into the sun and there was this whole postmodern world that I'd, I'd not been reading at all because I'd, I'd been so immersed in the classics. So it, it's it's been a roller coaster of reading the last few years for me coming back into the, the postmodern world. But Sylvia Plath is absolutely a huge influence on me. Annie Sinan as well, Henry Miller, uh, Lewis Carroll. Right. I, I was a little girl too. <laughs> but uh, I do think that Alice in Wonderland is interesting because there are so few quest stories that involve a girl well, as, now the that, her, as the heroine. That's an interesting observation. I, I really wouldn't have thought of the Alice in Wonderland as a quest story, but oh, of course it is. is. Yes. Absolutely. You know, she journeys from the world to the other world and out of it. It's an underworld journey. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that that's, that's why so many people are drawn to it, because there are so few of those. You know, there are any number of, of hero quests. There's, you know, Gown in the Green Knight and, and all kinds of things that, that young boys can attach to as, as being models for their experience. But there are so few for young girls. And so a lot of us really attached to Alice in Wonderland perhaps because it is so strange. It is something entirely other than the, than the hero quest we're used to, and as it should be, uh, since, since it's not about the, the normal hero quest. You're, you do a lot of journaling for the web. Your website is fairly active. Yes. How do you feel about the process of self-revelation as you undertake it in a book like The Labyrinth or in your other fiction writing or even your academic writing versus the process of self-revelation on the web, that live, right there feel? Uh, well, the web is a very strange place and teaches me all kinds of things that I didn't even know I wanted to know. Um, the, the live journal that I do keep is kind of an experiment for me because uh, I did keep another journal online that was very much like labyrinth writing and was told over and over again that it makes no sense and nobody understands it. And uh, why don't I just keep that in a paper journal because no one cares. So I wondered if I was at all capable of writing a day planner, of writing, <laughs> of writing my, my everyday occurrences in, in uncloaked language. And so I started, I started a journal where I did that. Um, and it is very active now, and I really enjoy it. It sort of keeps me alive in my alone time. But um, it's a very strange experience because for the most part you write in a vacuum even though there's there's interaction and there's all, all of these kinds of communities but sometimes it'll just hit you that you're being watched and it's it's a very unsettling experience whereas once a novel's complete it's outside you 
it's you know it's beyond revision it's it's like a child you hope it does well but there's at some point there's not a lot you can do about what it looks like and and what it grows up to be whereas any kind of web presence that's constantly updated is a constantly evolving form you know every every entry is is sort of a new direction that that uh, a journal can take which i find very interesting but um while my journal is entertaining i think i i don't i mean i don't consider it to be anything near on the level of my novels. It's not serious writing to me. It's just something that I do that's fun. I have to ask you, right now you're undergoing an experience that's really unique and, and I think deep in that your husband is at war. How, do you, how does that affect you as a writer just trying to bring forth work like The Labyrinth, your academic, and how does it affect you as a person? Well, The Labyrinth was written before he went, uh, before we were married. Um, we were engaged and living together, but he, uh, we, we were fairly, we were pretty sure that what was going to happen in Iraq was going to happen. Uh, we didn't think, even though it was several months beforehand, we didn't think there was any way this wasn't going to go all the way to war. And so we tried to prepare ourselves for it, but um, I, it was like living in a bad Victorian novel, you know, standing on the dock and saying goodbye to ships. And it just wasn't anything that my experience, other than my reading experience, had ever prepared me for. Uh, it was very, very difficult when he was gone. He was gone for six months uh, on a ship in the Gulf. And uh, though we had email long, they would get their email shut down pretty regularly for security reasons, and we just wouldn't hear anything. We'd hear on the news that an American naval officer was killed, and your heart just jumps into your throat for 48 hours before they released the name. Um, I was 23 years old checking the BBC every morning for casualty reports. There's just nothing that you can say it was like. It was just a, it, it was a heart-bearing experience. Um, he's not in in the active part of the Gulf right now, but uh, he we're right next to North Korea, and uh, he very regularly makes trips to some pretty troubled areas in the world on his ship. And uh, the strange thing that I think that only only people who've gone through it can really understand is when you stop crying, is when you you stop worrying every day about what's going to happen because it it's a constant threat. And you can't live like that. And so at some point, you just try to keep the moments you have together and live your life when they're not there. And that's really hard because it sounds really hard. It sounds really callous and cold. But it, it's, it's the metamorphosis that happens when, when you have to live that kind of life. And it's not permanent for us. But uh, it, it has certainly been a whirlwind the last few years. Do you feel that this experience is incubating a piece of fiction within you? Well, much as I th my live journal was an experiment to see if I could write a day planner, I think I am going to attempt a completely normal novel, just one, one in my whole life. I, I will try to write about my experience in Japan and uh, and being the woman, I, the left behind woman, which is a hard thing for someone like me to be. I'm I'm not generally the kind of girl that wears the polka dot dress and waves with the handkerchief on the dock while the ship retreats. It's just not me. It's not an, an image that I ever thought I'd be living in. 
But uh, I, yeah, I think that, that there is something incubating there, um, and and I'll I'll try to bring it to fruition. But but there are so many other things that are demanding attention right now, and I don't I think I need to be a little further away from it. I would imagine uh, so. It's it's a little rough right now <laughs> to try and I, to try and put anything like that into words. We've been speaking with Catherine M. Valenti. Her new novel is The Labyrinth. Thanks for joining us, Kat.